Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 221. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 221 you're listening to. My guest today is Hans Decline. Hans is a Grammy-winning Los Angeles-based mastering engineer who's worked with U2, The Pixies, Snoop Dogg, Veruca Salt, Lisa Loeb, and a giant list of many, many others. He actually comes to us as a recommendation from our good friend and former WCA guest, Brad Wood. So thank you, Brad. Brad is a frequent client of Hans's. So uh, very excited to bring you this interview. Hans Decline coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Coming up shortly, we're also going to have a conversation with our friend Drew Vandenberg. Drew is a former WCA guest from episode number 193, and he's going to tell us all about his new nonprofit that he's working on called Athens Resonates there in Athens, Georgia. So we'll have that coming up here shortly. But first, let's have a discussion about diversification. All right. So we talk a lot about diversification on the show. We've talked about it for years, actually. And it can mean different things to different people. I've been asked, well, how should I diversify? What should I diversify in? You know, what's the path to doing so? And when do you do it? Well, if you want to stay doing what you love doing, and it's just not bringing in, bringing in enough money, uh, you're going to have to diversify. So there's the start. So the question is, is what to do? And you know, the sky's the limit, really. There's, there are no rules. It's up to you individually to figure that out. You know, there's certain things that some people are better suited for. There's also the question of, do you diversify within audio or do you diversify with things outside of audio? In other words, let's say you're a mastering engineer and you're just kind of, you know, I don't know, maybe you're a grand short every month of, of your financial goals. So then the question is, is, do you go find a flexible part-time job like a Lyft or an Uber job? Or do you get a more regulated thing like a, a part-time gig at Starbucks? Or do you come up with another audio-based thing to do? And that's, you know, whatever you're comfortable with. Your different areas are going to, you know, support different job possibilities. If you're in the middle of nowhere and it takes you an hour to drive somewhere, well... You're going to have to come up with something on your own there at your own residence. Uh, however, if you're in the middle of a city, uh, that's going to be a different story. You're going to have a lot more possibilities. And really the key question is, is, you know, do you diversify outside of the audio world? So there's so many uh, ways that this can go down. And it's, you know, it's a work in progress. You don't have to, you know... It's not like you have to pick it and stick with it. You can just, you know, experiment a little bit, find out what works for you. Also, schedule-wise, that's the the other part of this is when you diversify, work's going to bleed into other work from different gigs, and you got to figure out how that's going to how that's going to work for you. So, if you have a late night uh, live sound gig that you do outside of your, let's say, your mastering gig or your mixing gig. 
then you're going to need to make sure that, you know, your ears aren't fried the next day or ringing the next day. Because, I mean, if you get up, let's say you have kids and you have a late life sound gig. You come home at two in the morning, three in the morning, your ears are ringing and you go to bed. And then you got to get up early in the morning and, you know, get the kids out to out 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 the door. You're going to be kind of grumpy, number one. I've been I've been down that path. And uh, you're not going to be at your best. You're going to need some more rest. So make sure that you plan it right. Think it through. You know, plan it a bit so that you have time for rest, time for clients to uh, accomplish what you want to accomplish for them. And uh, make sure that you are bringing in the required money that caused you to diversify in the first place. So check it out. All kinds of ways to do it. Diversification. Yeah, man. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. All right, as I was saying, we're going to have Drew Vandenberg, former WCA guest on, to talk about Athens Resonates. So let's do that right now. Hey, Drew, great to see you. Great to chat with you. Uh, tell us about Athens Resonates. What are, you, what are you up to with this thing? Hey, Matt. Yeah, it's good to see you, too. So Athens Resonates is a charity initiative that I started here in Athens, and it's a group of, I guess I'd call them creative-based businesses. That's sort of the visual arts, music, and I'm including food in that also. I think that's a creative business. We can all agree. So we're coming together to support these two programs we have here in Athens. One of them is Nucci Space, which is an incredible resource that we have here in town. Nucci Phillips, unfortunately, took his own life about 12 years ago. He was a local musician here in town and his mom took that horrible tragedy and started this incredible organization, Nucci Space. Basically, it's a space that 
musicians and artists and other people without insurance can come and receive mental and physical health resources. They, they run physicals. They have in-house psychologists and psychiatrists they can connect people with. They have dentists that come by and can do dental work for people. But on top of that, they're also a performance space and a safe area with, I think, about six practice spaces where kids or adults of all ages can come and rent rooms by the hour or by the day to rehearse in. They also run a series of rock camps, music camps for kids during the school year after school and in the summer. Uh, So it's just a really incredible thing that we have here in Athens. And then our other cause is uh, I've recently helped start this music maker makers program at uh, the Boys and Girls Club here in town. Mm. And that is a studio based learning program where we've we actually got way more funding than I ever expected we would originally. So we built a computer lab and there's a studio space that somebody had donated the money for about 10 years ago, but they just didn't really have anyone to run the program. So now this new program is we're teaching kids two times a week after school about the recording and making music and being in the studio. And we're trying to make it STEM compliant. So kind of sort of taking a practical approach it's actually, you're one of the people that made me think about this is I'm t- teaching them all how to do music production, but also with the idea that teaching these kids other things besides just, hey, be a music producer, like you can do audio for the internet, or you can make a podcast, or we're going to produce commercials for the club where the kids film the video, edit it, record the location audio, edit it, and they now have a practical AV skill. So it's sort of teaching them about music, but also trying to show them that in the sort of other sectors of tech and things like that, there's a practical, potentially high income jobs that you can make if you start and learn audio production. What Athens resonates is, is uh, I'm taking the lo- taking local bands from Athens into Chase Park Transduction, uh, David and Andy's studio, and recording them live to half inch two track in the studio. That's mixing on the console. I've got reverbs going. I got everything. I, I, they have to get it right, and I have to get it right. And we're recording it to our ATR 102. Doing five to six songs, and we pick our best two that we like. And then Kindercore Vinyl here in town is pressing up seven-inch records of each of the you know the two pairs of songs we pick from each band. And then a local artist is designing for the year. I'm trying to do six of these every year is designing each album cover for each band. It's an original piece of artwork by that artist. And then a local screen, screen printing company here, Ruby Sue Graphics, is hand screen printing each cover. Then we'll sell 300 of these super limited edition records uh, online and at release events that we're having here in town. Because of the way it's structured, we have the studio, Ruby Sue Printing, Kindercore Vinyl, Joe Lambert is mastering them, my little label, True Blue Records, is distributing them, and then the Georgia Theater and Creature Comforts, which are which is a brewery here in town and a venue space, all these people uh, and New West Records, they're all donating their time and their skills. So we have zero cost. So literally 100% of all these sales go straight to these organizations. The only thing we couldn't do in town is get the metal stamper made for the vinyl. And the great folks at Welcome to 1979 are doing that. And that is besides the cost of paper to print on, literally our only cost. That's the idea. And then also, I should mention DT Productions, a local film company, is filming all these sessions. So you'll get to watch me and the band 
scramble to try to get it right. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll have a YouTube channel also as a way to promote things. Well, so this this is a great community based thing. Is this a uh, is it a nonprofit? Is is it a five hundred one c three organization? Yes, it is. But so what I was able to do is we have a really cool resource here called the. Uh, Athens Community Foundation, mm -hmm. and what they allow you to do to so that you don't have to deal with all the paperwork and the bureaucracy of setting that up, you can set up a fund through them. Mm. They run it, and you your fund is automatically 501c3s. They can issue tax receipts for people, and they keep everything above board and tax-free for you. So if people wanted to donate to this, they could, and they could receive a, uh, a tax credit uh, here in the United States. If you buy a record, it is tax deductible and we can send you a receipt. My whole idea was rallying the sort of creative business organization here around these two amazing things we have to, to not only support that cause, but also shine a light on everything that we do here in our small corner of the world by creating this uh, kind of unique, one of a kind moment in time sort of document, you know? So these are all local Athens bands? Exactly. Yeah. Um, this year, I'm working with some of the bigger connections I have to build up the name. So the Future Birds are doing one, and Kishibashi is going to do one, and uh, David Lowry from Cracker slash Camper Van Beethoven. We're claiming him as an Athenian because he's married to one and has been living here for several years. So <laughs> okay, even though he's really a California boy, but been really exciting. And uh, honestly, it is so much fun getting that mix right in the moment and and being right there on the edge with the band and stressful, but also for me, it's like you're sweating in a good way in the moment. Do you have a website that uh, I can direct people to in the show notes? Yes, we'll be we'll be getting the website up and going any second now. It's just AthensResonates.com. Okay. Wow. Well, kudos to you for establishing such a, a strong community-based organization that really kind of helps a lot of different people and gets a lot of different people locally to contribute uh, time and energy and effort. It's kind of nice when you, you can do that and kind of go outside the studio and work with other businesses and nonprofits to, to do things that help others greatly. So great job. Thank you. You know, I mean, and I'm not just saying this cause it's you and I talking, but last year when I had a slow patch it, about exactly a year ago is when I started to d decide that I wanted to do something like this. And one of the things that made me think about it was listening to your podcast and just thinking about not just diversification, but what what can you yeah what can you do instead of sitting around feeling sorry for yourself? What can you do with your spare time? What you, you know, it's I can mope around because I don't have enough bands to record, but my life is that I get to record bands. So w what else can I do with my time that could help benefit you know my community at large? So you know, thank you to you for. I listen to your podcast, listening to what all these different people do. It's, it is inspirational to think about what else you could be doing with your time instead of uh, whining. <laughs> Excellent point. Excellent point. Well, thank you so much, Drew. It's great to see you. Great to talk with you. And I wish you the best of luck with Athens Resonates. Great. Thank you so much, Matt. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You can talk with me about it 
As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, let's get into our interview here with Hans. Being that we're mostly all audio folks here, I know you all will take notice of the fact that we did do it over Skype, so it does have a few Skype demons in it, so bear with us. The information is great, though, and the interview is fantastic, and I think you'll learn a lot. So without further ado, let's get to it. Hans Decline, here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Hans, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. You came on my radar as a result of a discussion with Brad Wood, who sings your praises quite a bit. Brad's, of course, great in his own right. You come highly recommended. That's uh, very flattering. And when I met Brad, I met Brad working on a Lisa Loeb record, who I've been working with for at this point now the last 10 or 11 years. But at that time, I don't know, six years or something. And she mentioned she was producing a record with Brad, and I was like, ooh, that's cool. I'd like to work on that. So when Brad came over here and we started talking, it became very clear. I think Brad was sort of put at ease because I literally grew up listening to the records that he was working on. You know, obviously Liz Fair's Exile and Guyville. So I, I spoke the language and understood his aesthetic immediately. And he knew sort of it was comfortable for both of us just working together that way. And and since then, we quite like each other. And so it's a good thing. And I'm flattered that he says anything at all about me. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of Lisa Loeb, I was looking at your website and looking at the testimonials. And her testimonial was very telling of a client where she said, essentially, she I'm paraphrasing what she said, but essentially she said she's very particular and that you handle all the details of what she wants in a thorough way. She's one of the few clients I deal with who is very particular and she knows frequencies and she knows exactly what she wants. And what's weird is we generally, when I master a record for her, there's very little feedback. And I think a lot of this stuff at the end of the day, and obviously mastering is very technical, but a lot of this stuff is about sharing the same aesthetic with somebody. So you can have all the bells and whistles and you can have all the credentials, but it really comes down to that you both hear things a certain way and like things a certain way. So if you share those aesthetics, it makes working together very easy. And if you don't share those aesthetics, you run into problems. And I've had that even with mix engineers who I have worked with forever, for nearly 20 years, who nine times out of 10, we share the same aesthetic, but sometimes we just do not hear something the same way. And with time, it gets to the point where you're, I'm able to identify now when that's happening and be able to say, look, maybe you need somebody else on this song or you know, a different approach because I'm not getting it. 
Yeah. You know, even when I start over, I'm not getting it. So back to Lisa Loeb, she is very specific. And I love when she comes back to me and says, hey, something funny is going on in the 3K range. And that's great. But like, I love sort of working with people who know what's bugging them and can like pinpoint it and tell you, and then we can deal with it and move on. You grew up in Tucson, Arizona. And of course, you kind of did what many of us do, and that's early experiments with cassette-based four tracks for people of a certain age, which is interesting because in some of the information you sent me about you, you talked about making a compilation tape, essentially, you'd make mixtapes of hip hop or punk rock tunes that you liked. And then you would put those on your four track and you'd compress and EQ and change the level for each tune so that it played down like a commercial release. And I think that's funny that you did that knowing that you're a mastering engineer now full time. And that's <laughs> and you probably yeah. didn't know it at the time. No, it's weird, right? I mean, I, but it shows you how 2020 hindsight, how you kind of things set you up for the rest of your life, things that aren't part of the plan. Yeah, I mean, I spent a lot of time as a kid listening to music and, you know, my parents were constantly playing. My mom had an amazing record collection and was constantly playing Dylan and Simon and Garfunkel and the Beatles and the Stones and Donovan. And, you know, so, I mean, it was part of my childhood, like every weekend that stuff was going on. So by the time I was 15, I was just totally immersed in the rock, pop, hip hop world in my room and just making, like you said, making compilation tapes. And, and I, at that point I was playing bass and I had a four track almost about the same time I started playing music in bands. I had also procured a, the four track and uh, Yamaha MT120 cassette four track. And it had EQ and compression. And I love doing that kind of stuff, making compilation tapes for friends and matching sort of levels and doing that stuff. And I had no idea <laughs> that, I mean, could you imagine like that? I mean, that's like a dream job for a 15 year old. And now I get to do it as a 46 year old. So, <laughs> <laughs> so by the time you got to college, you were writing and recording songs and as I understand it. Some of those songs wound up on the desk of Andrew Slater, who's the manager of the Wallflowers. Didn't Andrew Slater also produce a Wallflowers record? I believe he did. Yeah, I think he did the third record, or at least he had an executive producer credit on it. Shortly after he, we started working together, but he got Fiona Apple. He started doing that. And then, of course, you know, he went on to being the president of Capitol Records, which is no big deal. Oh, yeah, no big deal. <laughs> But yeah, I got a record deal basically out of that. I signed with Sony Workgroup and it was based off of basically, I mean, I did four track demos and a guy in college knew a guy back in LA who said, have this guy come out. I want to do demos with him. So we did demos on a early version of Pro Tools. It was like a session eight. I don't know if you remember I, I that. totally remember the session eight. Yeah, so we did a we did demos on a session eight, and I think maybe Josh Freese played drums on that. And like, I mean, we were all like kids, you know. And it was amazing. Of course, Freese at that point was already an accomplished. He'd already like done the first Westerberg record, and you know what I mean. And you know, the Vandals and like a million other things he'd already done. So he was already huge in my book. You know, he came and banged out the tracks in like two seconds, and was <laughs> like. And afterwards, he was like, man, I like this digital stuff. It makes me sound perfect. And I'm like, no, dude, you're perfect. <laughs> we didn't have to move anything around. You're that good. So, uh, <laughs> But it was just sort of funny to hear him talk about that. You know, and that's, I literally did like a handful of songs and I got a record deal that. There was no band. You know, it was just me, the little inner 
world of my own that I put on tape that for some reason somebody liked. And it's funny, too, you talk about, didn't you guys have Tom Lord Algae mix it and you sent him the hard drive? Yeah, right. So then, yeah, so we worked on this and then the, the album, we did it all on a hard drive. We sent it to him and we actually didn't send it to him. The producer in the band and guitar player in the band brought it over and, and he looked at it. He was just like, you know, I mean, at that point, I think he was still used to tape. It was coming in as tape. And, you know, this was like 96, I'm guessing. And he's like, what is this? Hard drive didn't even compute. At least that's how Toby Miller, the producer at the time, interpreted the look on his face. <laughs> I'm sure he was didn't say those very words, but still, it, we had a laugh about it. He didn't end up actually mixing the record. We, we kind of did some songs. And I mean, you know how this stuff goes. And, and we ended up, we had Mark Ender ended up mixing the record. And he did the first Fiona Apple record. I think he engineered and I think he may have even produced and engineered the second one. Mm. So he did a uh, Tom Lord Algae remixed a single of a band I was in called Seven Day Diary that was on Warner Brothers. And I remember hearing I, I don't want to sabotage your story, but I remember getting that single back and just immediately going, oh, my God, can he remix the whole record? Because he was <laughs> he was just that good. It made it sound that rock and roll. And I loved it. Yeah, I agree. Those guys, I mean, they get it right. Him and his brother. It's exciting. And they know how to mix guitars and rock music and yeah, and pop music as well. And I mean, I think at the end of the day, regardless of what stage of production you're in, it's like, is this exciting? So if you're a recording engineer, is the sound exciting? Is Are the performances exciting? You know, and the same thing, obviously, there's overlap there with production as well. And then on up the chain. And I, I ask myself that, too, when I'm mastering it. You know, yes, I want to fit within a certain technical specification, but I'm also sort of, is this better than what I got? And am I making it more exciting? You know, and if I'm not, then the question is, why am I doing this? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or what am I doing wrong? One or the other. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as Check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. So you, you toured for a few years. You you had some success touring with the Wallflowers, Smoking Popes, Our Lady Peace, but that all kind of came to an end in 98. And the studio side of things beckoned to you. So did you have any particular mentors or who or what caused that shift from performer to studio guy? There were no mentors. It kind of just goes back to being that 15-year-old in my room, in my parents' house, doing like demos and compilation tapes and stuff like that. And I kind of just sort of naturally went back to that. And, and by the time I had finished being a touring musician and doing the record deal and seeing how all that went, and I didn't want to be in a bar band for the rest of my life. And I didn't want to be, and certainly not in L.A., <laughs> LA is particularly thankless playing shows to people who stand there just with their arms crossed the entire time. And I love LA, by the way, and I'm not dissing LA, but everyone knows this if they play here. 
that, you know, a lot of the times you feel like you're playing to people who are too cool for school. And they are because we see there's a five bands playing in 200 bars every night till the end of eternity. So we're spoiled here and um, it's a tough gig here. And so I saw my future as being either doing that or being a studio musician or maybe a composer. And I was terrible at composing. I tried that and I wasn't good at it. I'm not good at doing what I'm told when it comes to writing music and producing music. And the same goes for as being a session player. I was a rhythm guitar player and that's it. And nobody hires just a rhythm guitar player. You know, they bring in a guy, you know, they bring in Fred Tackett or some cat who can really play and like can do all of it. They don't need just the guy to walk in for 30 minutes and play a rhythm guitar. Like that, that's never, <laughs> never, a, a, there's never a job opening in a studio recording studio for that. Or they just send all their tracks to Tim Pierce. Right. Well, there you go, Tim Pierce. Thank you for bringing it into this decade. <laughs> so you had a friend that needed mastering and you volunteered, and that was around early 2000. And the people that you sent it to loved it. So that was the first time, right? I mean, like, so I was kind of recording and, and mixing and producing and kind of, you know, trying on a lot of different hats and trying to figure out where that was going to go for me professionally and, and hoping that it was even going to go anywhere and working day jobs just like everybody else. And the only time I ever got good feedback on any of the stuff I did was when I started mastering. And I had no idea what I was doing, except for flashback to when I was 15. I was like, oh, right. So in that sense, I kind of grew up doing it. And I didn't realize again that that's what mastering was. And it really took off for me. I, I really, I loved doing it. And I got big engineers who I loved and respected were coming back going, I don't know who you are, but this sounds great. And I was like, that's cool. You don't need to know who I am and let's do more, you know, and slowly but surely I built my business off of referrals and doing that kind of stuff, just word of mouth. It was like, Hey, I know this guy, I'll do it. Wow. And so by 2005, it was full time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's weird. Seemed like forever, I guess, in a sense, from 2000 to 2005, it seemed like a slow crawl. But yeah, to be able to quit your day job and to do that full time was a feat. And then to still be doing it, honestly, it's, I mean, you know, being in the music business and certainly in the production side of stuff, you know, it's dog eat dog and we're constantly being challenged as feast or famine. And we're constantly being challenged by some kid who watched a YouTube video and thinks now he can do it and he might be able to. So the competition is stiff and a lot of people are getting in the game. And also with the music business, a lot of musicians did what I did, right? So when it dries up on the band side of things, you start going, well, I still want to work in music. So where do I go? So a lot of people go into production and mixing and recording. And so we have to sort of constantly fight for the scraps and, and earn our keep, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's kind of break this down. Let's dissect 2005 to 2019 for a second. Now, sure. when you were doing it in 2005 versus now, give me kind of a broad overview in those years of how you developed the business, how you, your methods obviously changed, you know, your working methods, that is your workflow, how you dealt with clients. And I'm sure in that time you were dealt some defeats, but you were probably also dealt some major victories too. So let's dissect it for a bit. Tell me about 2005 to 2019. Well, I will say it was a gamble when I sort of started doing it full time. I wasn't making any money. I just kind of went all in. So thank God for credit cards. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but 
I took a gamble. I took a gamble like everybody does when they they have to run a business and you you find the money and you you sort of put it all on the line. And specifically, I started going to shows and I mean more and telling people what I did and doing all that stuff. MySpace was there was a point within that first two years where if you and this is ridiculous and I'm fully aware of that, but if you did a search on MySpace for mastering, I was the first guy to come up, and that's because. That's because, you know, most of the reputable, respectable mastering engineers would have never in a million years stooped so low as to be, you know, looking for work on MySpace. But I I had absolutely no qualms with doing it. And I found, you know, there's still bands I work with today that I found on MySpace. And they're incredibly talented. So my, I saw uh, the possibilities with social networking in terms of connecting with talent, musicians and artists. And, you know, the other thing is when I started sort of there at that moment, the number one thing I did as a business plan was test masters, which, again, like none of the respectable big cats were doing that at the time. I mean, why they don't have to like audition for a gig. But now you can see they do like most of them will do a test master. Um, Some of them may charge you for it, but they may do like a reduced rate or whatever. But the point is they understand the point of that. And I think it has gotten more competitive and I built my business on it. I mean, at the end of the day, like you've got a bunch of people who, when I started, had way more gear, way nicer rooms, much larger credit list. And I had to prove why I could master your record as opposed to them. And I still do it. I still like that. I like the competition. I like the fact that, again, regardless of what equipment somebody has, it still matters how you use it. And it still matters. Again, we go back to aesthetics. Do we share the same aesthetic? And also part of that is, can we communicate? Will I listen to you? Will you listen to me? And can we make this something better than what it is together? And not just sort of, what is it, the wizard behind the curtain who, you know, is unseen and you can't get a hold of and does his thing and then gives it to you. And then that's the end of it. Yeah. I know that there's got to be a level of intimidation or I don't know how, how best to put it, but when you're going up against guys like, and and I know some of these guys and they're, and they're great. So there's no disrespect here, but when you're going up against Bob Ludwig or Dave Collins or David Glasser or Gavin Larson, people who have, we'll call them facilities. They've got a building that they either rent or own. It's built out. It's got, all the the beautiful hardware mastering gear that one would use, and it's got a perception. And those guys do fantastic work. There's no doubt about it. And then they're up against people who also are equally as talented, but they're doing it in a different way. They're doing it out of their homes. Some are doing it in the box. Some are doing it in a hybrid fashion. What was your feeling about how to compete against those guys that have those facilities? Well, I don't, other than, again, being sort of like, hey, let's do a shootout. And that's how I compete. I mean, it really really comes down to what does it sound like? I always go back to that with people, you know, and sometimes I work with some clients who want to talk about gear and they want to talk about process and what I use. And I'm like, that's fine, but what does it sound like to you? I think that really is what it's all about. You know, I always use the analogy 
You can buy a race car, but it doesn't make you a race car driver. And you can have a 747 jet, but if the guy behind it is not going where you want to go, what good does that do you? Or even worse, he doesn't know how to fly it. So then at that point, it's like, well, I'll take a guy who knows how to fly who's in a Piper Cub because at least you're going to get there. And if there's an emergency, the guy knows how to handle it. And I, I really think technology has leveled the playing field. And as much as equipment matters and room matters, a lot of these guys are the business has moved more my way, not more their way. And it's because the budgets don't exist where things were 10, 15, 20 years ago in that regard on any level, right? I mean, there was a time in the mid 90s, they were still throwing hundreds of thousands of dollars at rock bands to get the next Seattle thing. And, you know, that stuff's all kind of gone now. It's a totally different model. And mastering has had to change. So I haven't had to do much beyond doing the test master thing. And then I've slowly sort of improved and some of these guys have moved into their homes and you can outfit your home so that they don't have this huge facility overhead and things like that. And they don't say that. But what's the difference if the room is outfitted and, and everything sounds good? It doesn't matter if you're in a facility or your home or wherever you do it. So that's how I compete. And for some people, they will always like a brand name and whatever it is. You know, if it's a car, they, they always want the best car. And a Toyota hey, it's a great car. You can drive it for 200,000 miles and it'll never need work. But that's not enough for some people. And that's okay too. I'm not that guy, which is kind of why I'm attracted to the name of your podcast, Working Class Audio. That's great. And you, you definitely embody that because you're in the trenches working. I'm always an advocate. And once again, all due respect to the guys and gals who are doing high-end facilities and putting their eggs in that basket. That's fine. But as you say, what does it sound like? And we keep, not just you and I, but the conversations over the years that I've had, I keep getting reinforced. Nobody gives a shit what you did it on. What does it sound like? Because yeah. when you buy a record, you don't buy it for the technical. You buy it for the emotional. Well, most of the buying public does. Those of us who are geeks t tend to buy things for technical Sometimes just to kind of get a sense of like, I remember buying a Dave Matthews record and a guy at the checkout counter at Amoeba in San Francisco says, oh, cool. You're going to go see him. I said, no, I actually don't even really like Dave Matthews. I said, I'm just <laughs> buying this record because I heard the single and I want to hear the whole record and hear how it sounds. And he looked at me like I was from another planet. And, right. and it was a great sounding record. Yeah. I mean, look, there's part of kind of what we were just talking about, too. I know a lot of these big mastering guys I totally respect. Some of them are working entirely in the box. They've got all that stuff that sells their services, but they are, and I know it, and they know it. And it's sort of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And I, honestly, there's a lot of big mix engineers who are doing it, too. And so that kind of just underscores what you just said, which is that it comes down to what does it sound like? You know, it's nice to have a name brand on things, but I would say that it's not how you get there. It is the person that's in the pilot's chair. And I'll say one thing, and we could put a cap on this and move on to the audience, but to draw kind of an analogy or, you know, a similar situation, there's an episode of Parts Unknown with Anthony Bourdain where he goes, I think it's to Quebec 
And he's going into these places where these young upstarts are doing gourmet meals on like electric stoves and off the shelf pots and pans from like Target and, uh, you know, like super <laughs> basic, we'll just say consumer level gear for cooking. And they're making right. these outrageously intense gourmet meals. And he highlights that point. And, and when I saw that episode, I was like, wow, this is just like the audio world in yep. cooking form. Yeah. That's what I want yeah. to say about I that. I think that's, yeah. And you know what? That's also what I love about that show. So, but that's a, for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> about a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app. And I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. So tell me about, once again... 2005 to 2019, what are some of the lessons you've learned about doing business as a mastering engineer in that time period? Honestly, for me, not much has changed in the sense that what people focus on, like just personally, sometimes like the volume stuff, I don't really get into a lot of that. And you and I've had this conversation prior to this interview. Again, it sort of comes down to sort of aesthetic and, and listening and some of that has shifted. And what I like is that now people are a little bit more concerned with dynamics and sort of tone as opposed to just whether it's the loudest thing in the world, which I never really related to. Honestly, in the way that it has not changed for me and has actually been reinforced is my relationship with people. The, the number one important thing in terms of running any business, but especially mastering, is having a good relationship with people and being able to communicate with them and find out what they like and what they don't like and why. I have had long-term clients fire me on projects, not because I was being a jerk or not because I wasn't listening, but because, and this is what we talked about earlier, aesthetic, that for whatever reason on this record that you did, I'm not getting it. I thought I was getting it, but according to you, I'm not. And I can feel that. And that sucks. So I've been fired from those records. But what's wonderful is that those people come back to me the next year with their next record, which kind of says a lot about not everything is personal. Sometimes it's just not right. And that doesn't mean that people don't like you or respect you or think you're incredibly talented. It just means that's just not working for this. And I think that's something that a lot of creative people struggle with, because I think being creative, there's a certain amount of sensitivity that you have to have. And sometimes it's hard to 
have somebody say, you know what, that's not working. And you kind of take it personally because it's you, right? It's you that they're rejecting, but it's not you. Sometimes it's just taste and preference and the timing's wrong and whatever. And so I think the last 15 years has really underscored that for me, that having good relationships with people and not taking things personally has really enabled me to go back time and time again and work with people even when I failed. So how you handle rejection is key in this, I would assume, because if you respond, hey, we're not going to use you, if you come back in an aggressive manner or a hurt manner, was it me? And, and try to claw at them as they walk away from you, uh, that's not going to go down well in the future. Yeah, right. When someone says, you know, hey, this just isn't working out and you go, well, screw you. You know, that's uh, <laughs> that's probably not going to, you know, that's a door that just closed. And it's also an, an unnecessary approach. I have had bad situations with people where there was no talking to them and there was no ability to communicate and they were mean and unkind and just jerks right out of the bat. And even then, I don't yell, screw you. I just say, you know what? I'm probably not the guy for this. I'm not your guy. And that's okay. And here's your money back. And like, find something. Find somebody that makes you happy. I prefer to live my life that way. That doesn't mean that I don't get upset or that, you know, sometimes my patience isn't tested. But I'm always stunned at hearing, you know, about other situations with engineers and bands where stuff just goes horribly south and everybody's just, it's a screaming match and name calling. And that's just not my thing. And that's not how I operate. I'm all about communication and sort of listening to what you want. And if I'm not getting it, I'm not getting it. And it's not personal. And okay, I mean, you may take it personally, but I don't. Yeah. So it's always great yeah. to take the high road and be professional and send them on their way happy with that parting of ways for that particular record, because if they have a good experience in the parting, they most likely will come back and say, hey, let's give this one a try. Totally. And again, that's why most of my business is word of mouth. Even the people that didn't work out, nobody's going online and writing a, a hate blog about me, you know, <laughs> which for some people that would be great, I guess, you know, at least someone's talking about you, but I would prefer not to have that negative energy, regardless of whether I think you're crazy or not. Yeah. And it can be hard separating your emotion from all of this sometimes. And you have to, you know, I've been hurt by rejection and I've had to just kind of move on, go to sleep, start the next day and then reply. Totally. Well, I mean, that's almost like psychology 101, right? When you're upset, never send an email or text. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, like, wait. <laughs> Give it time. Give it time. Right. Are there any uh, methods in your business that you've changed? Like in terms of your billing, do you bill by the song or what's the method been over the years? I've always billed by song. I do a flat rate and that generally works out for me. You know, there's going to be some projects where you work longer than others and there's going to be some projects where it's quicker than others and it all kind of balances out. I'm not a big fan of nickel and diming for every second I spend on something. I kind of like to just sort of do an all-in thing and kind of agree to it and move on. It's been very rare that I've had to go back and revisit that with someone because, you know, we go into like the third round of revisions for the entire record. Like I, that's almost never happened to me. So I, I think at that point I would, it's rare that we even have a round of revisions for an entire record. It's usually one or two songs or something, you know, so 
I've never had to go back and be like, okay, you know what? This flat rate thing is not working anymore. We're off-roading here. So let's revisit the price and, and talk about this. Yeah. I'm curious how you would address this. So I'm kind of looking to you for your advice. I had a record that I mastered where my processing stage is step one, and then I moved to a different program for sequencing and DDP creation and exporting and all that. I had a client that was constantly making mix substitutions throughout the course of it. And it was like, hey, so this sounds great, but you brought out this element that I think we're going to revisit the mix and we're going to recut the mix and we're going to send you a new one. And after about the third or fourth one, I think I said, hey, guys, we might have to restructure our pricing for those songs if mix substitutions keep happening because this is really a two-step process for me. And they were like, oh, okay, okay. And then the mix substitution stopped. But I was cool about it. I just, I was very clear and, and jovial, but- how would yeah. how do you handle stuff like that? I mean, exactly how you handled it. That does happen, and I understand why it happens, but I do limit how much that occurs. Like, in that particular instance, I would only swap out a mix once, and I would certainly not do it for an entire record. If you had a different mix for every song that we've already mastered, then we would have a discussion about that. And what I ended up telling them, I said, hey, you know, as far as volumes, if you like want to manipulate volumes and, and spacing between songs, we could do that till the cows come home. That's I've got it pre yeah. prepped in a, in a program and ready to go and explain totally. those two processes. And they seem to get that once I yeah. explain myself. Not to belabor the issue, but I, I do think a certain amount of stuff doing favors where you switch switch out a song and you just don't charge for it and things like that. I think doing a little bit of stuff gratis, again, earns good favor in the future. And I'm all about having you come back to me for the next one. So I'm usually pretty flexible about here or there swapping mixes out and stuff as long as you're not doing the whole record and we don't go into multiple switching out of one song and all that kind of stuff. What do you do outside of mastering? What do you do to keep yourself occupied or entertained or inspired that has nothing to do with audio? <laughs> I bumped into a guy the other day when I was picking some food up. He just started randomly talking to me and he told me that he raises wolves. So <laughs> that's, that's what I do when I'm not mastering. <laughs> I have decided to raise wolves. I, I, and he also had an orange grove that he grew. So I, I have an orange grove and I raise wolves. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> I run and I read and I like exercise and that's pretty much it. And I, I have friends that I enjoy hanging out with. I mean, I'm a big fan of having, because we're doing what we love that started out as a hobby. It, it's not a hobby anymore. Right. So when I'm not working, this is sort of funny, like one of the reasons I like I don't do a lot of interviews and we've had this discussion, A, because no one asks and I don't blame them. <laughs> and B, <laughs> and B, you know, it's like I don't actually generally like talking about music outside of, you know, what I do outside of because I do it every day. And so when I'm not doing it, I love doing something other than that and talking about politics or psychology or whatever. I have a lot of interests. And I think that having a lot of interests outside of your line of work informs your line of work and actually sort of in some ways sort of rejuvenates you and makes you better at your work. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Photography is one of my hobbies and I treat it like a hobby. 
yeah. with my purchasing decisions and how much time I put into it, et cetera. Right. And interesting you bring that up because it's funny. I, I've often thought that mastering is a lot like photography in the sense that you're playing with contrast and tones and just even as you're sort of working a compressor with attack and release, that it's sort of like dialing in the focus. Yeah. And it's interesting because coming from the recording perspective, I look at photography like as I'm taking a photo, I'm trying to get it as close to finished right then and there in that one click as possible so that I spend right. less time in Lightroom mucking about with it, right? Right. Post-process, right. Yeah. But that's fun too, because sometimes those can be like outrageous art projects like, right. you know, where you completely screw with the whole thing. Yeah. And that's, and again, that's where it's a hobby. You get to experiment and play and enjoy, and it doesn't ever have to turn into anything viable, whatever that means. And then as far as furthering your own craft of mastering, do you do anything in particular to do that besides master records? I mean, do you read up or watch videos or talk to people or go to seminars or what do you do to kind of fuel it? I don't do any of those things. <laughs> <laughs> I avoid all of that. Uh, I would like to never have to do those things. No, all joking aside. Yeah, I do read up on it. I, I kind of pay attention. You know, I ask people when they use other mastering engineers, sort of what their experience was and that kind of stuff. And, I, you know, I definitely keep up on the software, the technology side of it, because you have to. But it's interesting, you know, as much as things have changed technologically, they, they haven't really, right? I mean, it's still just sort of in, ma in the mastering world. I mean, luffs aside, it's really still just comes down to like, do you want more bass or more treble or more mids or louder or softer or more compression, stereo image or something? You know, I mean, there's how much variation is there going to be with a stereo track? As much as it's not brain surgery, of course it is, because there's a lot of complexity and all those simple questions. But if you're able to sort of distill whatever somebody's aim is down to those simple questions, generally you have a good guide in terms of what needs to happen. And those things haven't changed in, you know, a hundred years, really. So uh, how you get there has, but it's all still sort of reinventions of the wheel as far as I'm concerned. Where can people find out more about you? You can go to my website. It's just HansDecline.com. Okay. And last name is spelled D-E-K-L-I-N-E. -E. Okay. I was making uh, dinner reservations one time and I gave them my name and she was like, uh, how do you spell that? And I'm like, it's like decline of the Western civilization except with a K, <laughs> which, which went over like a lead brick because she had no idea what I was talking about. So what was the point of the joke? Right. But at least you laughed. Right, right, right. Now, yeah, is that the right. decline of Western civilization or the metal years? Did you see that? <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. It's uh, They're all classics. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Well, Hans, great to meet you. Great to talk to you. And any friend of Brad Wood is a friend of mine. Brad's a sweet guy. And, and I'm really happy that he brought you to my attention because uh, you are truly in the trenches and, and working class here. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate it, Matt. I had a great time. Thank you. Fantastic. Well, t you take care. You too. Hans Decline here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for being with me today. 
Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. And we want to thank everybody that helped make the show possible. Talking about Cliff Truesdale on the music, Chuck Smith on the voice, and Anne-Marie Plo on the editing. And I want to thank you for joining us. Spread the word. Tell all your friends. Tell your parents. Tell your parents' friends. And that's it. Until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware... Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.